So I thought we'd uh, structure this uh, with uh, people who are, I guess, actively embedded in the entrepreneurial world, uh, coming up with uh, questions or issues or problems that uh, others may have had some experience in attacking, resolving, undermining, undercutting. So um, uh, yeah, so come come to the. I hope you've come to the call. <laughs> some questions or things to uh, to talk about. In the case on the call, I'm not particularly interested in uh, sharing my thoughts and experiences because Lord knows you all get enough of that in general. So uh, does anybody here who's in the entrepreneurial world have uh, any issues or questions or problems uh, in that uh, uh, in that uh, in that place? I've got one, but if anybody else is keen, I can uh, go to the back of the line. That's cool. Do it. All right, so I have... Um, Being an entrepreneur means elbowing your way to the front of the line at all times. Oh, right, you know, throwing people, you know, out from in front of me and, you know, generally striding the world. Um, yeah. Okay, so I have uh, I have two sort of enterprises that I'm working on. The first is uh, the IT consultancy that all of you guys know about. Um, the second one is actually something that I have been coding up over the last few days, and I, I now finally have a sort of working prototype of a website. Yay! Um, but I, I was wondering, you know, I think that I'm working on the second thing, even though I, I really do want to work on it, um, just so that I don't have to do any marketing um, for the first thing. So I just want to know, like, how do you tell? Um, like, how, how do I tell why I'm, I'm not so much interested in, in the marketing right now? I, I don't know. Well, first thing that I would suggest, and anybody else, of course, can jump in, uh, just saying that uh, my, my experience is that our knowledge is the key, right? That you would sort of say, why am I not interested in the marketing? Is it because, like, I have no emotional ambivalence about it uh, or fear of it or anything like that? It just bores me. Um, or is it uh, some, something else, right? Like, it's because, you know, a lot of people really dislike the, the constant rejection of the sales world, right? Uh, of, of being in sales and marketing. And uh, it certainly is the case that the vast majority of people have no interest in what you're doing. And it's finding your way through to those who do that's a challenge, right? So if it's like, well, I have no emotional problem with it, I just find it boring, then uh, that's one thing. But if it's like, the, I know it's important, but I find it emotional, I think that's another. Right. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's a lot of the latter. It's like, you know, not asking people means they're not going to say no. Asking people means like 99% of people are going to say no. And in and some theory, are going to say no in a rude way, right? Right. I mean, in theory, I'm okay with people saying no because, you know, if you don't need it, you don't need it, right? That doesn't say anything about me. But in practice, yeah, not so much. All right. Right. Yeah, I have a vague theory. There's like a, a ruling class that you know, a little problem with this stuff. And then what they do is they, they create environments or situations like, you know, school system or whatever, church, where they become afraid of rejection and therefore they're not going to compete with them in the entrepreneurial world because that fear of rejection is it's very common and it's not something that is intentional, but it's something that is, is, is much more common than it should be, right? And uh, so, I mean, and particularly those who have difficult backgrounds uh, as kids, right? I mean, that fear of rejection is, you know, because rejection was associated often with attack, right? <laughs> or some, something that was really negative. Uh, and so, uh, you know, does that sort of make any sense that that, uh, that sort of a, a deep history thing for you? Because I think that shows up for a lot of entrepreneurs. It certainly did for me to some degree. Yeah, it makes sense. So, you know, it's, I guess it's one of those things of, um, of doing what you said in the call, you know, the other night. It's like, yeah, so if they reject you, like, they're not any of these people who reject you in the past, right? So that's, if I can keep it there, I think a lot less um, resistance to the, the marketing thing. 
Right. And something else that helped me as an entrepreneur was to remember that uh, it's true that there is a, a huge amount of rejection in the entrepreneurial world, but it's not like outside of the entrepreneurial world, there is not, right? Right. I mean, there's no, and, unless you just, again, going to live on a cave in, on, on roots and berries, there's just no way to, to avoid rejection in, in this life. And I mean, anytime you try to do anything, most people will, will reject you, right? I mean, almost, almost nobody in the world sees any particular movie that's made, right? Other than a, a few, you know, some movie that's made, almost nobody in the world goes to see it. The vast majority of people reject every single movie that's out there. And there are a few hits or whatever, right? Same thing with bands, same thing with, with books, right? I think it was Gore Vidal who estimated there are probably no more than 100,000 serious erudite readers in the United States based on, I don't know what, but this, so the vast majority of books are uh, rejected, right? And as I've mentioned sort of in podcasts before, the majority, the significant majority of Shakespeare's plays are almost never produced. Or if they are produced, it's because somebody just has a fetish for doing all of them. But it's like five or 10 of Shakespeare's plays of the 52, I think, that, that are regularly produced. So even 70 to 80% of Shakespeare's plays are regularly rejected uh, as uh, as entertainment. And the same thing I think is true of Shaw and of Dickens novels and so on. So even the greatest geniuses can't get more than 20, 25%. And of course, we all know what happened with the last six movies of the Star Wars uh, set. Um, <laughs> they just suck like a wet imploding vacuum. Um, and so I think, I think rejection is, is just so such a very common and basic part of life. And it's also what helped me as well was to remember the number of things that I reject in life, right? I don't go see the vast majority of movies that come out, even though the actors and the directors who spent years working on it would, would be desperate for me to go. Uh, I don't read the majority of books that come out. I read a tiny minority of books that come out, even though authors worked for years uh, on them and, and are desperate to, to see them. I don't go see the fringe festival stuff. Like I get tons of flyers in the mail that toss out. I get, you know, emails to soliciting stuff that I dump, right? So I think that that aspect of things, I think, is important to, uh, to understand uh, that, that we reject the vast majority of things and not because we don't care. Oh, sorry, not because we dislike someone or wish them ill. I mean, I wish every author could get the satisfaction of, of a bestseller. I think that would be great. But um, so we, we are constantly rejecting others. And I think to remember that, I think, helps to remember how, how impersonal it is. Right, that makes sense because it's, it's totally like not about the the worth thing. And I think that you know Gorbidal came up up with that number by just you know counting the number of his acquaintance. It was about hundred thousand. So you know. Yeah, and you know he, he might be right. He might, but uh, you know uh, when we walk up and down the books the bookstore, right? We go and find a particular book, or we go around Amazon and walk up and down the bookstore. You know, we buy maybe three books out of the what ten thousand they have in the bookstore. We're rejecting everybody else, right? But it's not it's not personal. Right. Thank you. I, I'm not saying that fixes everything or anything like that, but I, mean, I think these kinds of perspectives, to, it, it breaks us out of some of the childhood stuff uh, and, and just reminds us the degree to which, um, you know, we participate in the rejection of just about everything, right? I mean, there are hundreds of languages in the world. I reject learning every single one of them. It's not personal. I just don't have time or much ability in terms of language. Right. I thought you'd uh, you'd started to learn Swahili or, or like the <laughs> clicking language, whatever that was. Yeah, I just sound like static then because I speak so fast. Uh, Mark, you have a um, uh, you have a comment that you'd like to make? Yeah, if uh, if you can Please, hear me, okay. Um, yeah, I find with being enthusiastic about marketing, I tend to fall into one of two groups uh, depending on on how I feel about the product I'm selling. If it's something that I'm really excited about then I'm, I'm caught up in my enthusiasm for, 
for what I'm selling, and I don't think about the social situation so much. Um, but on the other hand, if I'm trying to sell something that I'm not so enthusiastic about, then I start worrying more about details and, and uh, just sort of get overwhelmed with the, uh, the fears of rejection and, and the, the hassles of making calls. Is that something that other people find? Uh, can you hear me, though? I, I can hear you, Steph. Can you hear me okay? Oh, good. Yeah, sorry. I just, my mute button is still on, but it's off. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Uh, and I think it's also important to differentiate between self and product, right? That, that can happen. That can paralyze people, right? People are rejecting a product. They're not rejecting you because they don't know you, right? Um, yeah. So I think that's, uh, I think, I think that's important as well. Um, but yeah, well, I think that you have to really love and respect what it is that you're selling so to, so to make it something that other people are going to get interested in. Except those situations, of course, where you are the product, then it, uh, <laughs> it gets a little more personal. You mean if you're like a gigolo? Uh, well, well, less exciting than that. Just uh, consulting, selling time, selling projects, uh, trying to convince people that um, um, you're, you're the right person to solve their problem. Well, I, I do know a little bit about, about that, but, um, but I would say that even, you know, something as, as in a sense as personal for me as free debate and radio is that people aren't rejecting me. Uh, I am not uh, the podcast, right? I mean, uh, and uh, not the videos and so on. So uh, people are not, not rejecting me personally. Um, they're rejecting a particular way of presenting ideas or they may be rejecting the ideas themselves or the arguments themselves. But they're not, uh, and they may, they may even frame it as you're an idiot or I, I reject you or whatever it is that they're going to say. But it's still not about me because they don't know me as an individual. They only know the presentation and content of ideas that I'm putting out there. True. Like, you know, my wife knows me. Uh, my daughter, I guess, knows me to some degree. Um, uh, but uh, so, so and, and that would be a very different category from people who I would try to get interested in in philosophy. Like if somebody rejects science, uh, they're not rejecting, I don't know, Richard Dawkins Einstein. Yep. And one, one thing that uh, I'd found useful in the past was I had a, a combination of, of both consulting and a product. And so I could lead with the product. Uh, I could use that for doing my advertising and for uh, uh, having an excuse to do the cold calls. But then while I was showing off the project, I was more subtly selling myself. Um, so that, that made it a lot easier. That way you could lead with the thing that you were less worried about being rejected on and then follow up once you saw the connection was made and that, um, that a real need for what, what they needed uh, that you could meet. Right. No, I think that's, and I, I think the other thing that helped me with marketing was to remember that you don't really have to do it, right? I mean, you, you don't, you don't really have to do much marketing uh, or any really, as long as you're willing to accept the, the business risk that comes with it, right? It's like eating well and going to the gym. You don't, you don't have to do any of those things, but there are going to be consequences to not doing them. Uh, and so I think rather than saying, well, I just, you know, groan and force myself, I have to go do marketing. It's like, well, I have the complete choice to not do any marketing at all. Uh, and there will be particular consequences to that. And uh, your business won't grow as fast. But it, it really has to do with, with what kind of entrepreneur you want to be. There are some people, a lot of entrepreneurs who hate marketing, but just force themselves to do it. You know, they just say, I just I do it for two hours a day. Uh, or I do it for an hour a day. That's just, I have that down as my schedule. It's like going to see the dentist, but I do it every day. Uh, and they, they do that because they, they want to grow their business. They just, they want to be a big shot. They want to run a multi-million dollar business. And so they just, you know, like those can't mace them away Amway people at the door, uh, or I guess the, the religious people who come by the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's just a question of saying, I, I just, I want to grow that big and I want to grow that fast. And therefore I'm going to devote all this time to, uh, to doing marketing. 
I mean, certainly my opinion with regards to free domain radio is that I, I don't want to run a multi-million dollar philosophical endeavor. You know, I don't want to be like Werner Erhardt and found this S movement and, you know, charge people 800 bucks for three days of sitting in Rome and being yelled at. Um, it's, it's just, I don't want to found a university. I don't mean, maybe I will in the future. I'm still a relatively young philosopher, but, uh, but right now I want to, um, you know, produce work I think that has real value. Um, I want to share it with as many people as I sort of reasonably can, given the time constraints that I have with FDR and, and a family. And uh, uh, other than that, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I could take, you know, 50 or 70% of the FDR income and plow it straight back into web advertising and so on and really roll the dice that way and see. Uh, but um, it's, it's not my particular choice about where things uh, want to be. I mean, it's two and a half years old as a full-time endeavor. It's going fine. Uh, I don't particularly want it to grow that much faster because if it grows faster, it's going to take more time out of other things, you know, like the production of podcasts or books or parenting or whatever. So I think it's also important to remember that marketing is not a have to. It's a, if you want to, based upon what it is that you want to achieve in the short and long run in terms of business growth. True. And that's that's my favorite part about being an entrepreneur is you don't have to just maximize income. That's that's not the, the only reason for being an entrepreneur. You can also decide that you want to, to maximize your amount of free time, the, the amount of time you can spend with family, um, you know, the, the good you do in the world. Those are all just as valid reasons for being involved as, as bringing the cash in the door. Right. I think that when you're starting, marketing has um, a greater value than, you know, than a little, a little later on. I think if you're going to do it, uh, then do it at the beginning. That's certainly my approach. Uh, I spent money on, on advertising and outreach uh, and time on that at the beginning of FDR. Uh, not at the beginning, at the beginning of full-time FDR. Uh, but I mean, then I just decided to release the books for free. And, and to some degree, that's, that's my marketing. And I get couple hundred new um, YouTube listeners uh, or people who watch a video uh, every day. There are like 5,000 video views a day on uh, YouTube and there's a bunch of other sites, though they aren't quite as popular. And so that's just the approach that I, uh, that I take. So, um, uh, so it really is a choice about the degree of marketing that you want to do and it's going to have an effect on your business growth. But uh, I, think, I think that's important to remember. It's, it's not a have to. It's just a, if, if you want to grow your business, you have to do some marketing. And if you don't particularly feel like growing your business at the moment, then you cannot do marketing and I think feel just fine about it. Good. Uh, Shar, does that help at all? Yeah, totally. Uh, we're just talking, uh, just for those who've joined, we're just uh, talking about the, the challenges of selling what it is that you're doing, uh, the resistance to it, and how, you know, ways to not take it personally and, uh, uh, and so on. So we're just on that. And I think unless, unless we've not ground that topic into the desk, uh, maybe we can uh, uh, come up with another topic or question if people have them. Well, a, a concept that really helped me out was in a book that Jake recommended, actually. Um, Tom Hopkins, a book on selling. Uh, I think it's like How to Master the Art of Selling. And there's, this, there's a whole chapter in there about rejection and learning to love rejection is the title of the chapter. And he says that if you if you think of like for example cold calling or even like warm calling like calling qualified leads uh, and if you figure out okay I earn two hundred dollars profit off of each sale that I make and assuming that I make ten percent of these sales like ten percent of these calls I make will turn into sales so I can just look at each call as twenty dollars so even if someone says no I can be like oh well I'll just move on to the next call and that's another twenty dollars in my pocket or just something like that and seeing it as each no is as uh, putting a putting a dollar value on each no, so you you don't take it as personally. 
Yeah, like you have to get get the no's out of the way to get to the yeses, right? Exactly, exactly. And he said it, it isn't even just like a, tr- a way of tricking yourself because he said you literally have to go through the no's in order to get the sale. Right. Yeah, it's sort of like if, if you were driving to the airport to meet your lover who you hadn't seen in weeks. Uh, I mean, you'd, you'd be like thrilled with every mile that passed under your car getting to the airport, right? Uh, and in the sense, right, as you get to the sale, you go through the rejection. Those are just things under your wheels that you have to pass over to get to where you want to go. Right, right. And there, yeah, as I said, there's a dollar value on rejections, right? If it takes 10 no's to get to a yes, then each no nets you 20 bucks, right? Which is a weird way of looking at it. You know, woohoo, no, ka-ching, right? But, I mean, right, it, right. It's statistically, it's a very real phenomenon. Right, right. All right. Questions, comments, issues. People kind of solved all the entrepreneurial issues in the world. Well, and it, and it, I'm curious about um, just the general... Um, like I've I've come to a bit of a crossroads with uh, a particular client, and uh, I guess uh, is this going to be public? I I won't use names or any identifying. Yeah, names. don't use any identifying characteristics, but uh, it it may end up being yeah, the entrepreneur podcasts are pretty popular. So yeah, just do it general if you don't mind. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I've had this client, and and uh, my friends kind of know him as the exclamation mark guy. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, wow. <laughs> well, basically, he um. Yeah, every now and then, he, he's the only client I have who actually bugs me and gets on my nerves. Um, and every now and then, he's also the only client who has my Skype ID. Uh, he asked me for it, and I, I don't know why I gave it to him, but it was like three months ago, maybe two months ago. And he'll just like, I am like emoticons to me, like constantly. And what then I'll think? be like, like he'll just do like, you know, the little flat-lined face, like the little two nose or two eyes, a nose, and a little line. And oh, he'll the, just keep he'll, yeah. he'll, he'll go with you or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That one. Yeah. And then I'll say, what? What are you doing? And he was like, oh, nothing. I'm just bored over here. And I'm, I mean, he does pay me a couple hundred bucks a week and like a nice amount of money that, I mean, that doesn't pay the bills alone, but it's, I mean, it's enough to get by. Uh, or he's, it's enough he's paying you this for your Skype ID. Is that right? Just What's so that, that he can send you these emoticons. <laughs> well, Will Moyer, emoticon cash guy, right? Will Moyer was just like, maybe he's just a guy who has a lot of money and wants a friend. <laughs> like, but um, and he, I, I don't know whether the annoyingness is enough to um to drop him or like how I should approach it and what. Why this wouldn't is, you just appear offline to him? Uh, what do you mean? Well, well, I mean you can set it so that you appear permanently offline to people, or just turn it on once in a while. Uh, you mean like go invisible? Yeah, for him, just for him, I think. Um, I can I do that? I believe you can. Hmm, maybe. But but I mean, th- th- that's just sort of the one thing. I guess the the other question is, I mean, uh, we all face these kinds of oddities in the world, or what would seem to be oddities. And anybody who goes online, particularly anybody who does business online, you know, faces these kinds of oddities. I've certainly had my, perhaps even more than my fair share of people who just. <laughs> Do peculiarly attachy kind of things, and uh, it is it is a challenge. So, but 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 go on. Well, I mean, he pays me okay. Like he gives me a consistent amount of work, and uh, he the projects aren't hard, and they're usually just things I can kind of do on my um like the last few hours of a working day, and then turn into him. But like he, I don't know. There's just a lot of things that bug me about him. Like uh, for example, he. Um, he he never gives me a deadline, but then rushes me along when he wants a project back. Right. And like I just I'd rather I mean if he wants to give me a deadline, cool, and I'll I'll stick to the deadline. If he wants to say finish it whenever, I don't want him to rush me. But I'm having trouble. Basically, I guess the the um, the the 
meat of the issue is that I don't feel necessarily comfortable talking to him about this stuff and being assertive with him. But then I'm wondering if I'm not, if I don't feel comfortable being assertive about that kind of stuff, why don't I just drop him? Like that's kind of the, um, the where I sit on it right now. And uh, do you have um, work that can replace the income if you drop it? Or is that going to cause you hardship? No, I don't think it would cause me hardship. It, it would just open up more time for my other clients and give me more focus on that stuff. Right. And give me more time to market and, and stuff like that. And um, uh, when you think of, of, of dropping him, um, uh, is, it, uh, is it the conversation of dropping him? Is it the risk of losing the income? What is it that is causing you hesitation about dropping him? Whether you should or shouldn't, who knows, right? But I'm just curious what the hesitation would be. Well, I think he's just, I mean, he's very erratic. Like, he's clearly, uh, I mean, yeah, he's just not, like, one time he just sent me an email that had no subject, and all it said in it was um, the Minton effect. And then another time he responded to an email of mine that I had sent over the weekend with just an exclamation point, and I asked him about it, and he said, oh, nothing, I just decided to respond to every email in my inbox with an exclamation mark today, just for the fun of it. And so I, I'm just worried that, like, I don't know if he, how he, because if he, if he reacts that unstably, just in the course of a given workday, how he would react if I, uh, if I dropped him. And uh, is he, uh, he doesn't live anywhere near where you live that you know of, right? No, he's in Los Angeles. Okay, okay. I mean, there's, there's ways of easing out of relationships, right? To just take less work. I'm busy. I'm sorry. I'm booked up for the next month, uh, six weeks, you know, whatever, right? If there's somebody mm, you right, dislike, right. you can refer him to them. Um, oh, all right, right. Right, there's, there's ways of easing out of it so that it's not, I find you unsettling and, and I'm, spending, I'm spending three times the amount of time concerned about our relationship than I am actually doing work for you. <laughs> so it's really not very profitable to me. Uh, I mean, there's ways of easing out of those kinds of things, right? Uh, it's the old thing, like you actually don't have to break up with someone, you just have to say you're washing your hair. Well, I guess I don't, but, but other people could, right? <laughs> but no, you, you can ease out of that in a way that's going to be less likely to trigger his, uh, his uh, whatever, right? Right, right. That that makes good sense. Yeah, I like that idea better. Just kind of taking progressively less work until the point that he just like I don't know finds another writer on his own, right? And there's nothing wrong if you're busy, right? I mean, you're you're allowed to be busy and to not take work from people. No, exactly, exactly. But I guess the other question is um, why why drop him, right? Hmm. Right, right. I don't know. I mean, I that is a really good point because I. I mean, he is unsettling, and yeah, it's a little weird now and then, and um, I, I do think he crosses um, some work boundaries now and then, but I think that's, uh, I don't know, what, what would you think the case would be for, uh, for keeping him? Well, I mean, the case for keeping him is, uh, is income, right? I mean, the, the, that's, the only, that's the only plus that I can see, right? That's true, that's true. I mean, if you can replace the income and work with better people, then that would seem to me to be uh, a good and logical thing to do, but if that's an issue, then um, I would say... Uh, um, I, I just I think it's it just think it's important to explore because it would be nice to have the option to be assertive in a way that got you the income but not the oddness if that makes any sense now that may not be possible I don't know but it would be an interesting thing to explore. Well, I guess a possibility would be to kind of combine the I don't know not combine the two ideas but just sort of as I ease out of this relationship continually pick up more work from other clients so. Eventually, in I don't know three or four weeks, it's like I don't have any more work from him, and I've got more work from my other clients without being just a totally jarring bam, right? 
Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Right, right. Ease out of the marriage by having affairs. No, I'm kidding. But uh, no, I, I, I can say if you can ease this guy out. Um, but I, I still think it's interesting to explore. And again, I would trust your instinct. Interesting to explore the degree to which you might be able to um, to set some boundaries without having to cut the relationship. Again, I, whether it's possible or not, I don't know. Uh, and it certainly would trust your instincts on that. But uh, it does give you more options in, in the interaction, if that makes any sense. That's true. That that's very true. Um, yeah, and I could even just kind of because he's the only client I do the IMing with because um, he just asked me for my Skype ID and then he added me. I could just say, you know, I, I think it's probably just more efficient to conduct uh, conduct correspondence through either email or through uh, phone calls. Um, and if I'm not, if I don't have my phone on, you can leave a voicemail and I'll return return your call later. But I'd just rather not do IMs. Like something like that, because the IMs are the most distracting when I'm like, because I keep my Skype up because my Skype is my phone line. Uh, and then it's just like, I don't know, you'll just, I'll just get a whole string of smiley faces and punctuation marks and odd things from him. And it's just like, hello. <laughs> right. Now, if, you, but if you're going to set boundaries, you know, this is just my amateur opinion, of course, but if you're going to set boundaries, my suggestion is that you, you set the boundaries kind of hard and firm, so to speak, right? Um, and what that means is you uh, you don't say, you know, I would sort of prefer it if or whatever, but you can just say to him, uh, I've decided that I'm only going to use this Skype ID um, for work calls and not IM conversations, if that makes any sense. Right, right. Right, like, like that is like... I, <laughs> This, I've made this decision, so so please don't use uh, like please don't use instant messages because my decision is that I'm not going to uh, use this for um, uh, for instant messages. I, you know, right. as a whole, they're they're too distracting, and um, that's what I'm going to do. Like, not a would you mind if or better if or that kind of stuff. Mm, I like that. I like that a lot better. That sounds a lot uh, a lot more. Because otherwise, it sounds like a negotiation, and getting into negotiations with people who don't seem to be that um, uh, mature. Is, is usually not a good idea, right? That's true, right, right. No, that's I mean, that's, that's troll management 101, is right, don't negotiate, you don't negotiate, right? These are the rules, and you can be here <laughs> or you cannot be here, but um, this, it is not a negotiation, because, I mean, it's your IM, it's my server, you know, we can set the rules to be whatever we want, and because we are voluntarists, we know that arbitrary and destructive rules are not going to help what it is that we want to do, but uh, fair and reasonable rules, uh, you know, that are, that are universal, right? I promise not to send you uh, weird, I am one weird emoticons, and you know, do the same. But just say that that this is now what I'm doing. I'm not going to. So please don't I am me. If you have anything, uh, if you could send me an email, I would appreciate that. Or you know, we can talk by phone. But uh, I don't do I ams at work anymore. Right, right, right. And it's it's just uh, it's so interesting to see that juxtaposition because like all my other clients just send me just a nice paragraph long email saying, hey, could you get me this deliverable by Wednesday? That'd be great. Thanks. Bye. And just very professional, cordial emails. And then I see his email. So I think that's a good, um, I think that's the approach I'm going to take, uh, taking much more of a firm, this is what I'm going to do. Because uh, I think I was leaning much more towards the, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd really prefer it if you didn't uh, send me all this crazy shit. All right. Yeah, and the way of yeah, I mean, I prefer it if you didn't is more personal than I'm just not doing IMs at work anymore. I find them too distracting, so please send me an email or whatever, right? And then you know, if he sends you an IM, just say um, please uh, 
uh, I just says, you know, don't don't send me IMs, uh, send me an email. If, and then if he does, just say, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to block you, but, you know, you're welcome to send me um, uh, emails or whatever, right? But at the same time, you can be looking for alternatives. Uh, so um, so you may not, if it doesn't work out, you might have to continue. But I always think of these things as a fairly good opportunity to to exercise option exploration, if that makes any sense. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And and I I think that there is I mean mutual benefit in our in our working relationship I do think uh, I mean he is um, he's Hebrew he's from Israel so he does need an English copywriter and uh, I've established he knows my style and stuff like that so I think it would definitely he doesn't want me to drop him any more than from an income standpoint I want to drop him so I think there is a a start a standing point there on common ground. Right. And you do have all the power in the relationship, right? And where you have, I, I just think it's worth exploring, right? Because in a sense, just dropping the guy is not giving you option to exercise authority in the relationship. It's not what? I'm, it jumbled a little bit. Sorry, it's not giving you to uh, explore exercising authority in the Ooh, wow. And I see that this can actually have some... Um... Like this, this, there's there are some principles in this interaction that are more than just some crazy client that I might not even be dealing with in three months, right? Like there are actually principles as far as um, exploring this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's it's not it's not about this guy. It's about you and your self-expression and the options that you can explore, right? Everything that you do in the in the moment in your early entrepreneurial life is is like they're like forks in the road. At least that's my experience. And the more you explore optional ways or or in a sense not quite comfortable ways of of doing things, the more options you have in the future. You always have the option to disengage from anyone at any time, right? I mean that's just the reality of anyone you're not actually signing these twins with, right? So you have that option at any time. So you already know you can exercise that. What other options can you exercise in the relationship that might give you more of what you want, if that makes sense? Ah, uh, right, right. That makes perfect sense. And n- not inconsequentially, though, it would not be a core motivator for me, and I'm sure it wouldn't be for you, but it's good for him too, right? Right, right. Yeah, it just, it just spreads a little bit. You know, healthy boundaries just spread a little bit of you know, good source over the world, which doesn't mean everybody re- reacts to it well, but it, it is, you know, he just he just may not get that kind of feedback a lot, right? Again, I wouldn't give him the honest thing about, you know, because you don't know him that well, but uh, um, yeah, I, ju- I, I just think it's always worthwhile exploring uh, exploring options uh, in, in relationships uh, if that's, uh, you know, if, if it's mutually beneficial, mutually advantageous or whatever. Right, that's excellent. That's uh, That really helps. And I'll uh, I'll let you know how that goes for sure. Right. No, I, I hope I hope you will. I mean, I, I think those kinds of things can be helpful. I mean, I know that uh, some people who I had real problems with uh, and I, who I sort of uh, uh, told to stop posting on the board uh, ended up sending me donations, um, and I, I returned them. Right? Because to me, it's not it's not reasonable to accept a donation from somebody that I've asked to stop coming to the Freedom Aid Radio message board. At least, right? I mean, they can keep listening to the podcast, but it just doesn't. It didn't feel right. And a few of those people have actually, you know, they ended up getting help and they're actually back on the board now. And uh, I, I, I think eventually from one of them, I did accept uh, a couple of bucks. But uh, I, I just think those kinds of options uh, are, are, are worth exploring. You never know exactly how it's going to go down the road. But I bet you that very few people, I mean, obviously, very few people have set clear boundaries with this guy. Um, and I think it's worth, it's worth doing it. If you can do it with him and, and realize that you have that power. Uh, or realize that you have exercised that power, but it hasn't worked. I just think that gives you more flexibility in the future. It builds that that muscle or that skill set for the future. Cool. I like that. All right. We have uh, any other comments or questions or any comments or questions about that or anyone who's tried to do that with uh, with people? There's a question in the Skype chat shop that looks, um, staff that looks very interesting. 
Uh, I'm not at the chat, so go ahead. Oh, um, Caleb says, I'm interested in how to handle the situation when you realize you've underquoted. Oh, yeah, that's a, that is a big challenge. That is a big challenge. Mr. J, are you on the call? Did you want to take that one on? Because I've never underquoted in my life. Uh, I was vastly overquoted. 50 cents a podcast. <laughs> Massive overquote. But sorry, go on. Who are you talking to, Stan? Oh, I think he meant you, mate. Oh, well, um, hello. Uh, <laughs> underquoting. <clears throat> I always found that um, I think that is a horrifically difficult situation, and I always tried to avoid it. And the way that, um, that I did it was to be quite transparent about what the assumptions were in in the quote. So I always tried to 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 basically write down, you know, exactly what we were going to deliver and, and what we we're going to do. And that way, when you do, if you have underquoted, then it's a little bit different to just saying, oh, you know what, I've changed my mind. Um, actually, it's going to cost more because you can you can show what the assumptions were and you can explain why you think that um, the pricing isn't isn't correct because you're not just saying, you know what, I want this much money and then changing your mind about it. Um, but it is a difficult situation. I mean, uh, it, it's it's much easier if you're doing something that's standard. And it's so I found it so useful to try and standardize um, the 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 products that we were that we were selling. My company was a, a consulting company, but we really tried to make very standardized things that we were doing because it just means you know how much it's going to cost, and you know you know each time that you sell it what the pricing is going to be. If you get asked to do, to do something new and different, that's really difficult and, and it's much harder to price accurately. And the only way that I knew how to handle it was to just be really transparent about all the assumptions so that if you have to go back and renegotiate, then you can explain what, what assumptions have changed. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you have, you have had some, you've had some methodology by which you've created the original quote and either you've run into something unexpected, right? Like... Um, I remember doing a quote for a company for about I think it was $400,000 and uh, for some uh, customized work on the software that we were selling them. And what happened was the tree control that we were using to display the data that they wanted uh, ended up being incompatible with a particular version of Visual Basic 6. And that should give you a sense of the date. Uh, but it was a while back. Uh, and, and COBOL. But, uh, and, and so this was not predictable, right? Uh, we, we didn't know. You, you can't test software on every particular platform. And so we had to change the tree controls, and um, we had to uh, we had to sit down with them, and and I sort of took that side of the negotiations and said, you know, you know, here here was our assumption, and we build a certain amount of padding, and here's where some of the padding, you know, padding is not the right word, I can't remember what I used, right, a certain amount of contingency or whatever, which we return to the client, if unnecessary, but here we had to spend an extra X number of hours because of this. Uh, this compatibility issue that some people in your soft in your company have this piece of software which conflicts and blah 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 blah. And so I said, look, we don't feel comfortable charging you the entire amount uh, of of this work because it's not your fault, right? At the same time, it's not really our fault in that we can't conceivably test our software with every known configuration of software and hardware. We can't send the bill to Microsoft, whose control it was, and uh, whose with the, the control did not work. Um, so, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to absorb the cost of buying the other tree control and we would like to split. Like, we'll take half the, the cost if you will pay half the cost uh, and uh, uh, something like that. And I think that we ended up going down to a third of the cost because they said, well, you know, this is something that's going to be useful to you in the future, not having these conflicts. And so I agreed with that. And so we ended up getting some money back. And you could say, well, that's only one third of the cost. But it was a third more than we were anticipating getting, and therefore it helped to some degree. And it was right. We never had a conflict with that control um, with, uh, with another piece of software. So, 
Um, I think as long as you can step the client through the assumptions, you can also, when you, when you put out a quote, you can include the assumptions that you're making with the client, right? So you could say this quote is only valid if, you know, these conditions are met, right? So this is only valid if our software does not conflict in some weird way with any other software, uh, which is what we put into our future contracts, right? We put a clause in there which said, you know, this, this quote does not cover all possibilities of software conflicts, which will, will be charged uh, should they arise. You know, we've taken every reasonable precaution and we put a list of the software that we knew our programs were compatible with. But, you know, if there's some weird configuration, this doesn't cover it. So I think um, the underquoting is, it just happens. I think it's worthwhile putting in a little bit of, of padding, which you can, of course, return to the client should you not need it, although I think we almost always did. Uh, but simply share the assumptions that you had going in, share the assumptions that no longer fit, you know, ask for some split, I would say. And then in your future contracts, make sure that you do include um, limitation, limitations on the quote based on uh, particular um, circumstances. And if those change, then you have a reasonable way, a reasonable reason of, uh, of going back, if that makes any sense. You know, you can also say, uh, you know, this, this quote assumes that we get turnarounds within, you know, so when we send a, a version of the software for them to look at, that we get feedback within edits, uh, you know, for our own planning purposes and you die. And then if you, so this, this, you just borrow more stuff that limits your explosive quotes uh, and make sure with the clients ahead of time. So they end, and, and these, these limitations are in there. Does that? Uh, does that make that all software focus? But I think you, in other areas, where that can fit. I just wanted to add to that, Steph, that um, when you when you talk about um, you know putting in that this quote won't include various circumstances that might arise, I really remember in the beginning um, you know, we had a very short list of those things, and over time that list got longer and longer, just because you 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 do with each project you realize something else that could come up and, and actually cost a lot more money than you thought. And for my business, because it was consulting, it was often to do with the required data that in order to actually produce the type of computer model that we were going to do, we would need the client to give us various information. And if they didn't have it in the right formats and everything, then that would just involve a lot of work cleaning and, and, and basically sorting out their own information for them. But you, in the beginning, I had no idea that that was going to be there. So it, it is there is certainly thing that happens over time where you each time you do a project and some strange unexpected cost comes up you can then put that in your assumptions for next time and after a while you know it, it gets less and less that you actually do find yourself under quoting because you just know the types of things that are going to show up more yeah and you also know that something's going to show up right so um it, it actually got to the point where uh, we would do an hourly estimate uh, and then we would just tack on 50 percent uh, and again, we didn't always require that. And sometimes we, we did come in under budget a number of times, particularly later on in my career, I came in significantly under budget on certain projects. But it's, uh, you know, it's, of course, much better to say it's going to cost you 100 bucks and deliver it for 80 than to say it's going to cost you 100 bucks and, you know, require 150. Because it's also important to really remember that uh, on the client side, it's a very difficult process, right? People don't have, you know, bagfuls of cash sitting under their desk, right? If you end up having to get more money out of a client, uh, it's almost always the case that he is going to, he or she is going to have to go and get that money from somewhere and explain why that money is needed and explain why the vendor is charging more. And the person who he's explaining it to is not going to have that relationship with you. So there's going to be skepticism. There's going to be, right? So it's, it's a very uncomfortable position to put the, the customer in to, to require more money. And I think it's important to be very sensitive to that when you have those negotiations. 
The other thing you can do if it's in your control is always uh, start out new relationships with short projects. Figure out uh, you know what their payment schedules are like, uh, how how uh, reliable they are with payment. Um, you know, find out if they're running on strange operating systems or anything else. Yeah, for sure. Just say you know here's our recommended technical environment, um, and uh, you know please let me know if there are any exceptions that we need to 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 deal with or to look at. But if if you're gambling all that on a week's project um, because you figured out a way to uh, you know do a pilot project or a feasibility study, then if either you get it wrong or they get it wrong, uh, there's a lot less at risk. And and yeah, I think that's right. I also think that in larger organizations as well, um, I think it's important because salespeople always want less, right? Salespeople always want the quote to be lower so that they can be sure of getting the business. And the technical people always want the quote to be higher because they know it's going to, it's going to be more than anyone ever thinks. And I think what's really helpful is when you sit down with everyone to hammer out the quote, just say, this is my estimate of how much it's going to cost from a technical standpoint. If we decide to underquote, that's perfectly fine. We can look at it as a lost leader uh, and we can look at it as a way of gaining entree or gaining someone for our resume or gaining some logo for our website or whatever. But uh, as long as everyone understands that it's, uh, it is against the advice of the technical person or whoever's coming up with the quote, that the, uh, the quote be that low, I think that's okay. And then when you go over, you can say, well, yeah, I mean, this is part, we decided to do this as a lost leader to get into this industry or whatever. Um, but I think it's really important important to make that clear just in terms of credibility as a technical estimator. Uh, I think that's really important. I get the sense that it is also really difficult in software development because I was never selling software development. We actually we did some development internally um, of software, but we were selling model runs. We were basically selling the output. And right. I mean, so that, that's a lot easier to price because you're basically more or less turning the handle and, and you know, you know, you, you, can, you know how much work that's going to be. Software, the software development that we did internally was just far more than I ever anticipated when we started the business. And I just think it is, it seems to be one of those things that is always more um, time intensive than, than you estimate it to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. That's uh, again, it got better. Uh, certainly, as I became more experienced, the first couple of projects were just eat your shorts. But uh, as I got more experienced, it, it got better. Uh, but but you know, the reason we need to learn these negotiations is that you can't ever perfectly predict. There are always going to be things that that change, uh, and uh, it really comes down to the credibility you have with the customer and the quality of the relationship that you have with the customer. There were some customers that we overcharged when we charged. We ended up charging like thirty or forty percent more than expected, and they were fine with it because we. Had had a really good relationship with them and we explained it and we stepped them through it and they understood that we weren't trying to gouge them and there was that acceptance. And there were other customers that we'd, we'd need an extra couple of grand and they'd freak, right? And so that's what the ones in the public sector, of course. But um, uh, so, uh, you know, the quality of the, of the relationship, I think, is so, so important. And that's, you know, if you have that good relationship, those negotiations go a lot easier. And I think that's why it's so important. Like, I mean, we would, you know, invite customers up to, in fact, the bigger customers would always want to come up and tour our facilities to make sure we weren't operating out of a van. And we weren't. By that time, we'd up upgraded to a truck. But, um, uh, you know, we would, we would sort of take them out. We would take them to a comedy club, we'd uh, uh, take them out for dinner, and we'd sort of get to know them as, as people rather than just as, uh, as mere business uh, relationships. And uh, I think that that really did help, that they know you as people and they accept and trust you, that you're not going to try and, and uh, pull a fast one on them. And I think that uh, that really helps. That's what I mean when I say that, you know, the stuff that you do as an entrepreneur is all, it's about the details at the beginning of things, not so much the brinksmanship at the end of things go awry. All right, any other comments or questions or issues or problems or is everybody already a millionaire?
I wanted to ask you, Steph, about um, your experience of uh, of having sold your company because I know that you went through that, and um, and it's twice. something that I'm sorry. I went through it twice, but yeah, sorry, go on. Not that we sold think... it twice. It was just it was sold once. I stayed on with some ownership, and then it was sold again. But anyway, sorry, go on. Oh right, right. I see. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's one of those things that um, I'm really, really. Uh, I'm very proud to have managed it, and and I know that I'm going to get a huge amount of benefit from it when when in, when this process is finished. And the timing was was great and everything, but I I do find it very hard um, to see. Um, I, I sold to a big corporate, and to see, you know, I mean, it's not the case as as many people think that there there is an economy of scale in big corporations. That if you join a big corporation because they have all of the accounting and everything else all sort of proceduralized, that all of those things are going to get cheaper. I mean, for us, it was completely the opposite. Everything just got massively more expensive in terms of the operation because uh, it's a huge bureaucracy, and it was really, uh, I mean, for me, it's quite sad to see. What was a really flexible and um, and profitable business, you know, just getting kind of stuck in the in the in the glue of of, of that bureaucracy. Um, but then again, you know, uh, that that's sort of a price that I knew was going to be part of the process. But I, I just wondered what it was like for you. Uh, I mean, it was it was almost perfectly horrible uh, an experience, um, and. Uh, I mean, basically, yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the larger companies, uh, they do have some resources for sure, but they're also subject to a, a lot heavier and more restrictive. I, I think the economies of scale used to be more the case before larger companies got a whole additional layers of regulations and restrictions and controls over them, right? So the accounting controls required for a larger company are much greater than those required for a smaller company, and lots of additional problems come in uh, in terms of regulations when you get larger. So I think the economies of scale have been diminished by various status tactics. But uh, basically, I mean, the short story of, uh, of what happened uh, with my company was that it was um, because it was an environmental company, uh, certain people in the finance side, uh, particularly in the stock market side, felt that it was important to add to their portfolio so that they could get access to green funds, right, to people who wanted to invest in companies that had a green aspect to it. And so because we were a company entirely focused on um, reducing uh, emissions and, and bad stuff from factories to, to air and water and ground, uh, it was a um, uh, it was a positive thing to have it in the portfolio for people who wanted those kinds of green funds. And uh, so what happened was we just got a bunch, a, a whole layer of management that uh, that came in that didn't really care that much about our business at all, uh, but just were you know the money manipulators, right? The uh, the fiat currency dudes, right? And uh, that was a, a huge problem, a huge disappointment. So initially we were quite excited, but uh, what happened was. Um, uh, what happened was uh, it ended up that uh, it was just all these people came swooping in to uh, to, to use us to, to pump up their own stock value and, uh, uh, you know, then to, sh to sell their stocks and all that. So um, it, it really was uh, just like hanging onto a raft in a in a whitewater rapid, you know, trying to get all this stuff done with the distractions of, you know, all of this mad money floating around and all of this stock excitement floating around. It became quite quite distracting for everyone because we, you know, a lot of us had some stock options and and so on. So uh, it, uh, you know, the, the company as a whole was gutted and, evis and eviscerated according to exactly the kind of financial greed that, uh, you know, we've seen in the banking sector, the mortgage sector, the derivative sector, the, you know, all of that. It's, it's the Gordon Gecko stuff, right? I mean, just, just buy the company, extract as much stock value as you can out of it, and then, you know, drop the 
half mold carcass and move on. So uh, to me, it was a it was a perfectly horrible uh, experience uh, in general. And uh, I so I was uh, I was happy to uh, uh, I was happy to leave uh, uh, when I did. How long did you have to stay in there? And and um, how did you have you got any uh, uh, psychological uh, survival tips? Well, uh, I yeah, I was um, I, I I didn't have quite as as long as a tenure on the on the surf village as you do. I, I had to stay in for a year. Uh, and then um, uh, I was offered a ridiculous amount of money to stay on, which I turned down and uh, and left. Um, uh, I think I stayed on an additional six months just to finish up some projects. And, you know, I liked the people that I was working with and I liked the work. And I had, I think, I mean, with most of my customers, I had very good relationships. So, uh, so I stayed in for that. Um, yeah, t- towards the end, it was definitely, uh, you know, I did feel like a ferret in an upside down aquarium, like an empty one, just <laughs> wanting to get out as, as quickly as possible. Um, but what I, you know, the, the thing that helped me the most was to recognize the reality of the situation, right? And it's a hard thing to do, but it, it no longer was my company, right? So obviously, I'd spent seven years really doing entrepreneurial stuff, you know, that well, I guess maybe five or six in total before we sold the company, which was, you know, nights, weekends, travel, sometimes two weeks a month, that kind of stuff. And then just to recognize, look, it's, it's not my company anymore, right? So it, it's really important to pry that. If you've sold off the responsibility, you kind of have to peel it away from you emotionally, right? So if stuff that was happening, uh, if stuff was happening that I didn't agree with, say, hey, it's not my company anymore. They bought it. Uh, I took the money uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, I can't undo that. Um, and so it's not my company anymore. And so for the last six months, I was, you know, focused, I became an employee to remember that you're an employee. It's not your responsibility. It's not your company. Uh, they're not your clients anymore. They're not, it's not your product anymore. Like you have sold it. And so it becomes, you know, if you sell your car, you don't phone the guy every three months saying, listen, remember to change the oil and don't forget to dust the uh, glove box. That gets really dusty. You just, you've sold the car. It's now somebody else's responsibility. So I found that to remind myself that I was just an employee and uh, to, to let go of all of the strategic decisions that used to be part of being an entrepreneur, just focus on the tactical getting things done that I needed to get done. Just say, I am an employee. I'm an employee. I'm an employee. I'm an employee. And that gave me a lot more relaxation when it came to uh, viewing the larger stuff, which I no longer had uh, direct control over. I think that is very helpful. Um, and I certainly feel that way. I mean, I, when I first joined, I sort of thought, well, I'll, I'll see whether or not, you know, some of the things that we developed, particularly interesting technical things, can be applied at the larger scale of this corporation, because that would be really cool to actually bring some entrepreneurial um, sort of uh, innovation in. And that's, you know, that was the story about what they wanted from us as well. But yeah. now I, I do, you know, that that just completely, I, I came up against a complete brick wall with the culture there on that. And um, now I do find that that it is really helpful to to think of myself as an employee and just to focus on on um you know on as you say getting getting my job done um within that context right and and it's not like i mean i guess sorry to to be slightly more accurate it's not like i'm an employee and employee but for me it was like i'm going to act as i am treated right so i mean obviously i think like you i tried to uh, to bring entrepreneurial stuff to a larger organization, uh, you know, I, I was uh, I sat in on the the board movie. Uh, sorry, I sat on on the uh, uh, on the board meetings, and I you know wrote white papers, and I wrote business plans, and I did all this kind of funky stuff. Uh, and I consulted on on other technology stuff, and I think gave some useful and uh, and good feedback. Uh, 
But it became to me pretty quickly that these guys, they were just, they were just, you know, manipulators, speculators. They didn't care about him value for certainly by my company. And given that I was an employee, they got to be more, more, they were treated as a you know, chief technology an employee of a, of a division and not even of a, of a company, right? Because we were just one division of a larger company. And so given that I was treated as an employee and I couldn't break that mold for whatever reason, that's what I accepted my role as, right? So it's, you know what I mean? It's like, if someone breaks up with you, you stop going to her house, right? Because <laughs> she's broken up with you, right? And so um, you just, you, you recognize the role that, that you've been put into, or in this case, the non-role that you've been put into, and you just accept it. Um, like, if you're going to treat me as an employee, then I will be an employee. It may, may not be my, be my preference, but, you know, may not be, be, be my preference that my girlfriend broke up with me, but they still can't go and, you know, go and hang out at her place, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, and it's interesting to hear about your experience because uh, with um, with the flotation, because I mean, what, mine was a trade sale, which is pretty straightforward, really. I mean, they just literally buy the company and, and so forth. But I have heard from people who have done um, either floated on the alternative investment market or or you know gone public in bigger cases and so forth. That when that happens, um, you know, the productivity just completely plummets because everybody becomes obsessed with stock options and just everybody is just watching the stock price all day and it sounds like that was sort of the atmosphere that you were in oh yeah absolutely we we joined a company uh, that had a listing on a stock exchange we were bought by a company that had a listing on a stock exchange and uh, we got shares and we got money and and some shares you know i fought very hard repeatedly to get shares uh, at uh, good options to the employees and um yeah that's that became the thing. And it, it's funny because it, it didn't become the thing because we were all so greedy. At least I don't think that was the case. It just, there's part of you that knows you're in a casino, right? There's part of you that knows deep down that your company simply cannot be worth 10 times the value it was worth three months ago. It, it can't be that you had this huge valuation that, um, and of course, this was in the late 90s, right? So, of course, everything was just going. You, you had software and environmental, which is, was, was our quadrant, and, you know, it was, uh, the sky was the limit. And this, the, the stock price went up 20 times in, in a matter of months. And, uh, yeah, we all, we all went mental. Because you know, you know you're, you're, you're along for a, a, uh, a balloon ride, or rather you're sort of, if you can imagine a tiny person hanging on to one of those balloons that you, you untie the knot and you let it sort of go all over the room. That's sort of what it felt like. So you know you're in a casino, and you also know that you're restricted in your sales, and it's complicated, and you can't use your insider information, which of course I never did. But it is, uh, it's really, because it, I, I think if you get stock options in a sort of free market stock market, it's okay, because it's a real reflection of valuation. But because we were in a bubble, uh, you just got this incredibly giddy sense of insane possibility and insane catastrophe, you know? So uh, it, it was a, a very intense and, and yeah, absolutely in many ways counterproductive time. And uh, sorry, last but not least, of course, um, because, you know, I clean up fairly well and can present fairly well, um, you know, I was trotted out to speak to potential investors. And of course, uh, that was great for the people who wanted to pump and dump stock, but it was not so great for the long-term viability because I actually did have a job um, running a software department. So yeah, it was, uh, it, was not, uh, it was not the peak of productivity and it was a real insight into what, uh, what uh, effect um, you know, funny money has on the real nitty gritty of, of, of business and productivity. 
There's quite an interesting um, bit in, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Richard Branson's autobiography is quite interesting. And um, he talks about the, I think it was like only a year and a half or something that um, Virgin was originally listed before they, they took it off the market. They, they, they actually delisted it because it was just, um, it was kind of that, that sort of atmosphere and, uh, and, uh, and the huge amount of regulation that came in with it at the same time as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that's very true. Certainly, were I ever to get into the entrepreneurial world again, which I doubt will happen, but if it should happen, um, I, I, would, I would absolutely never, ever, ever, ever go public again. Right, right. Never in a million years. It just, it, 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 it attracts all the wrong kinds of people uh, as far as uh, management goes. Like they, they really are just, a, uh, I don't want to get into the details, but yeah, it, it just attracts all the wrong kinds of people and uh, it, uh, it distracts you from, you know, from building value. Yeah, going public is like getting massive boob implants and then going to a club. You know, it, it distracts people from who you really are and it attracts exactly the wrong kinds of people. And I'm just not going to get a massive boob job again. I think that's a, an, a, definitely a great quote for the... I'm done with boob jobs. That's it. I'm not, you know, what if it's uh, uh, the old joke, you know, someone with a huge boob job, you say, uh, hey, were you in a car accident earlier? Because I, I think your airbags are still deployed. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just not, uh, not going to do that. Well, thank you very much uh, for, the, uh, for the feedback on the, on the process of selling. Well, how long have you, uh, have you still got? A year? Less than... Oh, 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 you're asking at the tail end. Yeah, yeah, you're just an employee. Look, look, what's your next thing and do your job and all that. And it's, it's a tough thing because, you know, when you sell your company and still stay, it's like, it's like you broke, broke up with the girl but you're still living in her place, right? It's kind of weird, right? Right, right. Especially when you see, you know, all sorts of decisions being made that you just think, why would you ever, that just doesn't make any sense. But, you know, it's, as you say, it's not my company anymore. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, you uh, you live with the girl, she breaks up with you, you're still living there, and then she starts dating some biker. And you're like, well, you know, not my girlfriend anymore or whatever, right? But still, it has an effect because you live in the place, right? So you can't, uh, you can't really escape it completely, but that's certainly a mindset that helped me. Yeah, and redecorating the apartment with all sorts of totally bizarre furniture. Yeah, goth, uh, goth cathedral, you know, blood-soaked thrones and stuff like that stuff. It's just like, what if I'm living in a vampire's brain or something? Yeah, no, I think, uh, but you know, you just, you got a lease and you'll move on, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, no, and I'm very excited about that, so. Yeah, well, congratulations, because I certainly remember the first time that we talked, it, it seemed like a hell of a high mountain to climb, but the peak is certainly in sight, right? And then you can just bobsled down the other side. Oh, on yeah, rivers yeah. of gold! <laughs> All right. Any other comments, questions, any other people who are facing what I'm sure would be an enviable problem of selling their company and having problems? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the challenges that we have as entrepreneurs. Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? Last call. All right. Look at that. A relatively short round table. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, I, I think for those who are around, uh, um, I think I'm going to try for this round table with Brett Vignette and Wes something or other uh, Monday night. So, or maybe Tuesday, depending on when they're available. So I'll post that on the board if you guys want to uh, check it out. He's, uh, he's got a good, um, he does a good interview on a Peter Mac show. So I'll post a link to that as well. Um, so uh, uh, he's, a, he's a good speaker for sure. He's a very good speaker, very eloquent. So Anyway, thanks everybody so much. I hope you had. Uh, hope it was a worthwhile call for you, and uh, I think it's uh, useful enough to keep as a regular feature if people still find it of interest uh, on the board. And uh, thanks everyone so much for your support. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend. And for those interested, in, I guess I will talk to you tomorrow. Take care, my friends.